Bill Alcoholic. He gave me a t-shirt this morning. It says Texas on it. I have no idea where the hell I'm going to wear that t-shirt. Karen and I showed up at Austin one time to speak at the Austin Citywide. And Charlie and Katie come and pick us up at the airport in their Humvee. Take us to the gun club where we're shooting shotguns. I have a picture of my wife holding a shotgun, which is stunning. And, uh, and then we went and had barbecue. So I told that at Austin Citywide, and I said, I think I've lost my California liberal street cred now. And that was a shocking experience to the system. Um, This has been a really special weekend for me, and we all say that, but for me it really has been. I've kind of been out of circulation for a while, and uh, I really feel like I'm back in the, in the mainstream again. Uh, these people that you've listened to this weekend, what a lineup. Uh, I hope I can continue. There hasn't been a dud in the bunch, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's just been stunning. And too much information, actually. It's like <laughs> sensory overload. <clears throat> You're listening to Chris and, and Charlie and Katie especially. It's like, I'm not doing this thing right. <laughs> you know, uh, there's something wrong with the theology here. You know, and uh, it's just stunning. But what you've heard and what I hear and what cranks me up, what I've missed, and you don't notice it in until you come back to it. You've been gone from it. What is passion? Just the passion for Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, it's uh, uh, some of us are a little weird about it. You know, it's just it's a passionate thing. It's very emotional. It's real. It's tangible. And you have heard that beautifully this weekend. People that are just in love with the whole thing, just the process of it. It's an aspect of our lives. It's not just something that we show up to. You just live it and breathe it. And you try to inject other people with that. Um, you either get it or you don't, you know, I think. Uh, each one of us thinks we know the right way. And it takes years to get over that. You know? And I think I'm just now starting to get over it a little bit, you know, that... Maybe there's other, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just love, I just, it inspires me, it invigorates me, it wakes me up, it reminds me, you know, I have a purpose in my life today. I didn't have a purpose. <clears throat> I didn't know where I was going, I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't have a purpose. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I found a purpose in my life. I'm one of those people that really believe and have experienced that if you really do AA, everything else in your life gets better. Everything. It doesn't mean it's always successful. It's, it's just about being peaceful. Today all I'm looking for is peace. I just want to be quiet. <clears throat> um, 10 and 11. What I'd like to do, I thought about this, I actually read the 12 and 12 last night. <laughs> Not the whole thing. I did 10 and 11. I didn't want to OD, you know, <laughs> too much. Because I tell you, 
my head is just swimming with what I agree with and what I don't, what I think's right, what I'm confused by. I mean, all this weekend, it's just a really good dose of AA. You know, a really good dose of the 12 steps, you know. Does the process ever stop? I don't think so. Do we arrive anywhere and now we're okay? No. I think it's constantly evolving. I think it's created and structured so that it constantly evolves. It's a spiritual path. And what you and I do, what most human beings do with anything that we come in contact with, we try to dogmatize it. We try to codify it. We want to understand. And I really believe that's the booby prize. You know, it's a mystery. The whole thing's a mystery. God's a mystery. But we want to understand. We want to know what it is. And I believe what you and I do, when those of us that walk into AA and we have a problem with God, we create a God and don't believe in it. Beautiful. There's a synergy about that. You know? How many times have you, many people here, sponsor a lot of people, and you've actually looked at a guy that's telling you about his problem with God, and you look right at him and you say, I don't believe in the God you don't believe in either. You know? I'm gonna, I agree with you, brother. You're reading the book with the guy and you go through the third step? Certainly not the way Katie described it. That is too much goddamn work as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I want to be chewing on that for a month or two, you know. Go and play the CD and go, no, no. But you look at the guy and you go, you ready to do the third step? The guy says, no. You go, why not? I have a problem with God. I look at him and I say, me too. Let's pray. The guy says, well, I don't even believe in God. And I look at him and I go, nobody really does. Let's pray. We're all just whistling in the dark, hoping for the best, you know. But it says here in the book, pray. I've run out of options. How about you? I had an argument with one guy, this was years ago, when I would still argue with him about it, and I don't anymore. I looked at the guy and I said, well, I can do it, and I know I'm smarter than you. That went over really well. So let's just do a quick review. The first step says we're powerless. Now, they took it easy on us, and they just said that we were powerless over alcohol because they didn't want us to run screaming down the street. Right? What I've discovered over the years is I am absolutely, utterly powerless over everything. I, could say. I don't think I have any power or control over anything. But you and I as human beings, what we do is we look out in nature, we look out in our lives, and we make judgments. We determine that this is right and that is wrong. And as far as I can see in nature, there's no morality in nature. We add that. That's an intellectual construct that we come up with. We determine that some stuff is right and some stuff is wrong. And because we do that, we suffer. 
We suffer over that. I look out in the world at different things or different people and I determine that they're incorrect. And it doesn't change. And I suffer because of the judgment. The lion eats the lamb and we determine that that shouldn't be. It's not fair. I was in Yellowstone National Park last year. My wife and I went on a road trip and we're out in the Yellowstone and it's beautiful. It was beautiful. It's springtime that wasn't really crowded yet. And we're driving along this beautiful, gorgeous valley and there's bison all over the place and elk and these people are parked along the side of the road with their telescopes and they're looking at something in this valley. We stop, we pull up and there's a wolf eating an elk carcass. And we're staring at it, and this woman says to me, would you like to look through the telescope? So I looked through the telescope, and it was just awesome. I mean, it's just real. It's like, you're right there, you see it. It's just savage, you know, and this wolf is just chewing this thing up. And this old boy on the, sitting on the back of his pickup truck, he says, you know what happened? Oh, yeah, the wolf killed the elk, you know? He goes, well, actually, what happened is that there was a, a mother elk with a calf, and the wolves came and killed the calf. And the mother stood there by the body of the calf for days, wouldn't leave in mourning. And then the wolves came and finally took her out. And I looked at the guy and he went, oh. And he goes, yeah. yeah. And we look at that and you can make a judgment. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. That's heartbreaking. That's wrong. And yet it happens. The lion eats the lamb every time. And we try to talk to the lion, and he's just not buying it. He goes, no, it's just a lamb. So we make up fantasies. We make up parables. We say, sometime in the future, when things are good, because the present moment is wrong and incorrect, sometime in the future, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Now, I believe if that occurs... That lamb will be nervous for eternity. (laughs) It is the nature of the lion to eat the lamb. There is no morality in it. It's just the way it is. The world is just the way it is, and I have a problem with that. I have issues about the way things are. I don't like the present moment. And I suffer because of that. I suffer. So the concept of powerlessness as you go down this road of sobriety gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I suffer. Sober, I suffer. I have issues. I have problems. I have relationship problems. I have problems. And I suffer. If I can grasp this powerlessness... Just the drugs and the alcohol, the second step becomes operational. I need to be restored to sanity. What's sanity? Certainly enough sanity not to drink and use because that's killing me. I got that. I got that down. The obsession seems to be lifted and I'm, you know, I need enough sanity not to go back to the old life. But also just to be able to maybe just glimpse the universal nature of powerlessness. Just glimpse it a little bit. Therefore, it's a logical thought progression that I need some power greater than myself. It's just, doesn't, I don't have to believe in anything. It's just a logical thought progression. I need something to come in and help this process.
If I can get that a little bit, the third step becomes operational. Now, the third step's interesting. It says that we made a decision to turn our life and will over to what already has it anyway. It was nice of them to allow us that we have actually some say in the matter, you know. But isn't that the alcoholic position? There's the universe and me. That is physically and literally impossible. That sense of separation that I felt when I was a kid long before I drank, was it real? We all talk about it like it's an aspect of alcoholism. It's just an aspect of human nature. All humans growing up are egoic. Children are self-centered naturally. The problem with kids is they're more self-centered than we are, so there's competition, right? <laughs> That's why we have trouble with our children. We're constantly beating on them to try to become adults. We don't like them being kids. They're too self-centered. It reminds us of ourselves, you know? So was that feeling of separation, was it real? No, that's the delusion. We can't possibly be separate from nature. We can't possibly be separate from anything. We are part of what's going on all the time. We just can't see it. We have long, windy arguments about my will and God's will. I mean, I love the idea. What an egoic dream that I'm going to have a battle of wills with the power that drives the entire universe. You know? <laughs> I mean, we, we love sitting around talking about, well, I don't know if that's my will or God's will. You know, as if there could possibly be a difference between the two, you know. So we make this decision, what life and will are we going to turn over? The inventory. The end result of living a life with seeming power, resentment, fear, and broken relationships. That's us. That's how we get here. Sometimes that's how we stay here. You know, you can be stone cold sober and just miserable as hell, just full of anger and pain and misery and bitching and complain and argue. And you can't go to meetings because they're there. You know, you can't be an alcoholic if you don't know who they are. You know? All of us have been there at one time or another. All of us. You go through it. So the fifth step is where we physically and literally turn it over. You want to do three, do four and five. You know. We turn it over. We, we, for the first time in our lives, we begin to take responsibility for our life. What are my faults and mistakes? There's, there's no part. You know, there's, what part? Doesn't even really say that. You know, but the faults and mistakes is key. You know, what if you were molested as a child? What part did you play in that? You know, you were an innocent victim. But if you're 40 years old and you're still carrying that resentment around, at the bare minimum, you're unforgiving. And it's not about agreeing with the perpetrator. They don't feel the anger and resentment that you have. You feel it, and it's about your freedom. So at some point in time, all of us have to let go of whatever that is that we're hanging on to somehow. I think how we do that is kind of a mystery. But there are steps you can take. There is healing in these rooms. There are people that have been through what you've been through. I'm one of those people that somebody says, you know, I've never been shocked by a fifth step. Oh, I've been. <laughs> I've heard some interesting stuff, you know. That's another thing. In 34 years, I've never been bored in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Ever. I've been pissed off. I've been treated poorly on a regular basis for a long time, you know. <laughs> 
But I've never been bored. And if you're sitting out there this morning and you're bored, it's because you're boring. <laughs> it's not us. That's just an opinion, but it's a good one. <laughs> Six and seven are two paragraphs in the book, <laughs> and we'll be working on them for the rest of our lives. You know, and there's a lot there. There's a lot there. You can see it in the fourth column, you know. My faults and mistakes. There it is. I mean, there's two things about character defects, you know. There's defects of character, aspects of my nature that don't work well for me, that cause me a lot of trouble. And then there's stuff that's just missing, that I never got, you know. A friend of mine says, that's the shortcomings, that's the difference. There's parts of me that aren't there. When I got here, I did not have compassion. And I didn't know that I didn't have compassion. I didn't know that. I mean, the first talk I did on Friday was about intimacy. Essentially, it's about that. You know, how can I be intimate? How can I be close to somebody if I can't really feel them? And how would I know that I can't feel them when I never have felt them? So I don't know what that feeling is like. There's parts of me that I've never learned. In AA, you'll learn it. And if you throw yourself into this, you'll, you'll fill those voids in your nature. You, know, you fall in love with people. I described that on Friday, what happened to me when I crashed and burned at 10 years sober, you know. Coming out the other side, there was, I had done a lot of work and I had some compassion. I could feel, I had addressed some of these defects of character and some of these shortcomings, mostly unconsciously. You know, you just perform a lot of service around here. You do a lot of stuff. You reach out and you're trying to help people. You, you can't help but evolve. You will change. This is about transformation. It's not just not drinking, but there is a transformation that occurs. Where we change, we change. 180 degrees, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. You know, you can, I've seen that in people. And when I see it in you, I recognize it in myself. That I have been transformed. And I don't think that stops. I don't think I show up somewhere now that I'm this new transformed, beautiful being of light. You know, and you know, you can fall victim to that too, you know. And uh, eight and nine is where the transformation really starts, where it really begins. Eight and nine. When you go to somebody that you don't ever want to see again and you look them right in the eye and you make your, your amends, you try to fix the situation, you pay back the money, you say what needs to be said. When you turn and walk away from that experience, you are changed. That's a cathartic experience when you do that. And it's difficult. It's difficult for all of us. We don't want to lose. We don't want this. And we're embarrassed and we're ashamed. Some of it, I had some shameful stuff. There was an amends I had to make when this whole collapse was happening with me. Um, there was one I hadn't done. It was really embarrassing. I had forced myself on this woman. She was quite young and... And uh, it was really embarrassing, and I had done it a long time ago, and it was, uh, it was sad. And I didn't want to confront it. I didn't want to, and I used the excuse that I don't want to insert myself in her life and cause her more pain than I already have. You know, that's a good excuse. You can, you can ride on that for about 10 years. <laughs> you know? 
it's about how long it lasts. And uh, it got presented to me. And I went and I, I made that amends. It was really hard. And it went really well. Um, I freed myself and, and without knowing so, I freed her. And uh, we actually healed our relationship. It was stunning. It was one of those really good one. It was a good one. And, uh, and then you think, why in God's name did I wait all that time? Who knows? But it transformed me. And, uh, you know, one quick thing about amends is we have no idea the impact we have on people that we make amends to. Doesn't always go well. I've had many where people just like, yeah, okay, see you later. You know, and I did what I had to do. There were those. I was awful. I was awful. After that 10 years in AA, when everything fell apart, I had a lot of amends to make in Alcoholics Anonymous for the way I treated people, the way I looked down on them and abused them and rolled my eyes and sighed deeply and let them know how stupid they are. You know, I had literally at one point had a clipboard with a list of the good names on one side and the bad on the other. And I was sent here by God to let you know what a goddamn loser you are. You know, and it wasn't always that blatant, but it was pretty clear what was going on. And I justify, you can justify that behavior. Being right is everything. Being dominant and oppressive is my role in life. That's who I am. And I don't want to be that guy anymore. I don't even like that guy. He's an arrogant, pompous ass. And even when he's right, even when he's righteous, it's just I don't want to be that guy. And I have a lot of amends to make in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that transformed me. I could have very easily run away from here. I was ashamed and embarrassed at who I was and what I'd done. And it hurt. It hurt to be me. And it hurt for a long time. And there were a lot of people in AA that helped me be hurt longer, too. They liked it. And I had it coming. I had it coming. You know? You know. There's some residual of that still around in the local community. You know? Yeah. But they're burdened with me on their back now because I don't care anymore. You know? <laughs> so 10 and 11... Here's what I think's going on. One through nine is about 10, maybe 15% of the program. It's not the work. It's sober 101. It's the bare minimum that we you and I have to do if we're going to have a message that has any kind of depth and weight. It's preparatory to the work. 10, 11, and 12 are not maintenance steps. In my mind, there's nothing to maintain. 10, 11, and 12 is where we live. 10, 11, and 12 is the work. 10, 11, and 12 is how we address our character defects. You want to work on your character defects? Sponsor people. You'll run into every one of them. You don't even have to make a list and start working on them. They will present themselves in such stark living color that you cannot ignore them. You know? They'll come and visit you on a regular basis. You know? So if what happened to me on March the 27th, 1985, is I was awakened, 
I believe that's what happens to us. We wake up. Chris mentioned, you know, his head pops out of his ass and every once in a while it goes back in. You know, I mean, we wake up, we go back to sleep. We wake up, you know, I mean, that seems to be what happens. But we are awakened. And like the guru said, you know, I love you drug addicts and alcoholics. The rest of them out there are trying to be enlightened. You're just trying to figure out what the hell happened. <laughs> We're like clueless to that. You know, we wander around for a while until we realize, oh, something really happened. You know, it's a stunning experience. The rest of the journey is to take that awakening and have it evolve into an awareness where we're actually aware that we're awake and maybe there's something we can do with this maybe there's a purpose about this maybe I need to pay attention to the awakeness maybe it's just started maybe it just started this whole thing whatever this is whatever this mystery is Awareness is everything. It's everything. And you and I go back to sleep pretty regularly. You know? It's easy to get comfortable in it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It seems to be the cycle of it. You know, I wake up and then I snooze for a while and I wake back up and something happens. I think the thread that runs through it all, how we maintain the awareness or develop and deepen the awareness, is 10, 11, and 12. 10, 11, and 12. 10 is about self-awareness. It's as compared to self-obsession. 10 is paying attention. It's making amends in the present moment when something happens. You're aware. You watch yourself move through life. You develop the, the ability to be the watcher to observe yourself move through life and see what it is that you do that stands in the way of your own fulfillment and happiness. You can see it. You can't always maybe define it, but you know there's something wrong because you've quit blaming other people. The righteousness of being correct begins to fall away little by little by little. Not easily, you know, because we evidently just need to be correct. We need to be right, you know. And it's our perception of what that is, is the problem, you know? If I can do that, all of this is going to be presented to me. I will be able to see. If there's a transgression, I don't need to sit down and write about it and share it with three or four other people and share it at the home group and stuff. I can go, oh, I stepped on his foot. Maybe I should say I'm sorry. You know, it's not that deep, it's not that profound, it's not that difficult to identify. It's obvious what it is I'm doing. Slowly, as time goes by, it becomes more and more obvious. Over the years, I've learned that I can have attributes, I can have depression, I can have things, and I don't have to be attached to it. I can have responses that are just internal. They don't have to be expressed. You know, I never got in trouble for something I didn't say, you know, in my case. You know, there's some other people that have a reverse problem. Sometimes it's hard for people to open up. It's never been my problem. I am an extrovert. I am dominant. I'm loud. You know, I can suck the air out of a room when I walk in, you know. I don't like that guy anymore. He's still there, though. He's still there. You know, it's like one of my... <laughs> One of the awarenesses that I have is evidently there is not enough attention in the universe to satisfy me. <laughs> evidently. I mean, it seems to be that way. 
Now, should I be different and try and not need attention anymore? No. No. Like when you hear speakers get up here and they say, oh, I hate doing this because I'm the only one facing in this direction and there's too much light on me. Don't believe the asshole. You know? <laughs> we love this. You know? This is like feeding the beast. You know? And I just eat it up. You know? People ask me, aren't you nervous when you go speak? No, I get excited, you know. It's my turn to be the center. So the problem is, here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem. I'm an attention whore. Now, I get a lot of attention. Why do I need more? That's the problem. The problem isn't that I get attention. I get plenty of attention. I get more attention than... I deserve, actually. Why do I need more? That's what I'm looking at today. These last few years, I look at that. What, what's up, Bill? We heard a great thing. Charlie did a great thing on, uh, like, raising your hand, not being able to listen, and the whole thing, you know, breaking that down. Here's my thing. This is awareness now. This one has struck me. I'll be walking up to a meeting, to the home group meeting. There's a circle of guys having a conversation. Someone's telling a story. I will insert myself into the circle and take the attention away from that person. Charlie described that really well. My story's better. I got one better. Some of the stories I say to, that are better, I make them up. You know, back in the days when you were just like an overt liar. You know, the way you stop doing that is you say, "No, wait a minute. I'm just telling a lie." And you get so tired of doing that that finally you'll stop. Because you know, it hurt everybody looking out there. Bill's lying again, and he's going to confess, which is even worse. You know, it's like just tell the story, shut up, get out of here. You know, it's like one day I walked up to the home group, and there was a circle of guys there, and I walked up to it, and this guy was telling the story, and in my own benevolence, I allowed him to finish without interruption, and I walked away feeling much better about myself. You know. And it started there, you know, it started. Uh, when I started speaking around, it was really difficult for me to listen to the other speakers because I'm busy comparing myself to them. Am I better than him or her? You know, what, you know well, maybe I could say that better. So you can't really hear what people are talking about because it's all internal dialogue constantly, constantly. And you're so used to it, you don't notice that. When you start looking at it, you go, oh my God, is it really that bad? Uh, yes. It's really that bad. It's that bad. What do you do with that? Well, awareness is number one. When you become aware of that, it's really difficult to continue doing it. There's other voices on the committee that start presenting themselves. Like, take a breath, Bill. Stop. Listen to what Charlie's saying. Listen. Listen. Today I can listen. Today I hear what you're telling me. Where do you learn that? Sponsoring people. They come and they want to talk to you. You have to hear them if you want to help them. And you don't know that you have an answer until you sit and listen and you have your own life experience. Like a lot of people tell me in these workshops we do, you know, well, God, what do you say to people? You know, what if he asks you a question that you don't have an answer to? You just make shit up. <laughs> you know? Then you go find the answer and come back and fix it. You know? It's on the job training. You know? You gotta do it to get any good at it. You gotta do it. 
You want to learn how to listen to people? Have a whole bunch of people sitting there talking to you that you can't listen to. You know, pretty, you realize you're not hearing them. I'm not hearing them. My sponsor told me one time I was sponsor, when I first started sponsoring people, he said, Bill, when their eyes roll back in their head, you've gone on too long. <laughs> I had one guy sitting in my office. He's sitting across my table from me, and I'm lecturing about something really good. You know, probably about something I don't really know anything about, but I'm, I can make stuff up. I'm really good. It sounds good. And uh, this guy raised his hand to stop me. Because <laughs> you have to, like, physically stop me, you know. And, he, and I stopped, and he says, you know, I didn't ask you to sponsor me because I think you're so smart. I was stunned by that, you know. And I, and I actually said to him, well, why did you ask me, you know. I don't even remember the answer. It was just so pathetic, you know. It's like, it's like it was something else. I thought maybe you'd read the book with me or something, you know. I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to sit here week after week and listen to your babble on, you know. When that happens, you know, it has an effect. It's like, how do you confront this stuff unless you put yourself in a position to be confronted? You know, how do you learn to communicate with people unless you're communicating? You have to try. You have to lean into it a little bit, evidently. You know, this is all ten-step stuff. You know, sometimes I've even written things down. You know, I mean, I, I realize I'm having trouble with personal relationships. You know, it's not going that well. For, it's better. It's better, but I'm having problems. Awareness is everything. Awareness is everything. Waking up is good. Being aware of it is another thing. And I've read a lot of outside literature about this. You know, it's a, I think 10 and 11 are connected deeply. I think he wanted to make 12 and he split some of them up to make 12. But 10 and 11 really work in concert with each other. How do you help develop awareness? Prayer and meditation. You have to get quiet enough to feel yourself. You have to get quiet enough to transcend the intellect. Transcending the intellect is difficult. That's why we try to codify everything. If we can intellectually understand it, we feel more comfortable. But the experience of it is so stunning that it transcends the intellect. I think the spiritual path is experiential. It's not a concept. But we're humans, so we need concepts. So we create a God and don't believe in it. Or we create one we like better and believe in it. You know? Be prepared for that to evolve and change. As you evolve and change. Nothing is static. Nothing stays the same. You look in nature, everything's a cycle. We are part of nature. We cycle too. We are part of the evolutionary process. Our feelings and what we think change as time goes on. Or we'll try and stagnate. That's kind of dangerous. But it's not fulfilling, is more importantly. I don't know that we drink, but you see a lot of people that are just stuck in the 60s, <laughs> the 70s, or, you know. A lot of people even wear the same clothes. <laughs> it's, it's a little creepy. I'm one of those, you know. I'm a hot rod guy. The depth of my shallowness knows no bounds, you know. It's just, it's just loud cars and really shallow stuff, you know. I love it. The smell of methanol, you know. Sorry, I, I digressed there. <laughs>
So in meditation, you can watch your thoughts. In meditation, as my sponsor likes to say, meditation is not extra credit, it's in the step. Right? <laughs> meditation back in the 30s is something different than what it is today. You know? But there's nothing wrong with any form of meditation that I can see. There's guided meditations. There's meditations where you can do the St. Francis prayer and say it very slowly and think of each word. And when you read that prayer, I read it last night again, you know. <laughs> it's a killer, you know. It's AA. It is. It's a killer. Um, what I do is I sit and I breathe and I focus on the breath going in and out of my nose. And the mind will wander because that's what it does. The egoic mind doesn't like the present moment. There's nothing for it to do. There's never anything wrong in the present moment. Everything is absolutely as it should be all the time. And in the present moment, it's just the way it is. And it doesn't like that. It wants to be in the future or in the past where it can chew on things, work on stuff. Worry about the future, regret the past, or whatever it is. It just like sometimes it just thinks about fun stuff. But it needs to be thinking all the time. It needs to have attention all the time, whether it's positive or negative. It loves it when you work on yourself. You know? It loves it when you try to identify it. It's confused by it because it thinks it's me. It doesn't know there's a separation. I think it's me. I'm in collusion with it. I listen to it and I respond to it. It creates nothing, it just takes credit for shit, right? <laughs> it's not very, it's flat and two-dimensional. It takes the past and it projects it into the future over and over and over again. They were looking for you then, they're looking for you now, you know? It's always, it's always the same, it's flat and two-dimensional, it has no depth, you know? It's not the enemy, but we talk about it in AA, we talk about it in the third person, don't we? We say stuff like, my head's out to get me. We make it adversarial because that's who we are. And we talk about it needs to be crushed, smashed, killed, destroyed, changed, reined in, you know, strapped down, you know, all that stuff, you know. I, th I don't think it's the enemy. I mean, it, it, why would it try to kill me? It needs me for transportation. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's trying to help. It's just stupid. You know? You know? It really thinks there's a threat. You know? We got to be careful. You know, what did she mean by that when she looked at me that way? Well, that's a good one. You know, mind reading is one of its major strengths. You know, <clears throat> you know, fantasy into reality is a good one. It does that, you know, and uh, tinfoil caps. And... So when I notice that it's wandered away from the breath, I notice it. And I gently bring it back to the breath. And I notice it again, and I gently, and I exercise the muscle, the awareness muscle. And I'm watching it, right? And I watch it, gently bring it back, over and over and over again. You know, just keep doing that. And after a while, pretty soon the little periods of time get a little bit longer. You can say things like, you can ask it a question, you can say, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? There is no answer to that. So there's nothing coming back. It wonders why you're even saying that to it. So there's silence, you know. 
That's when I hear people say, well, I'm searching for my truth or my truth self. It just gives me the willies. I go, how's that going for you? And he goes, well, my sense is that there's no self there. My sense is that I'm not separate. The delusion is that there's subject, object, that there's a duality. There's me and there's you, and there's me and there's nature. That's the delusion. I don't think that's really there. Now, this is just me. The other thing I think about, I take a risk here. So this is, I'm just talking about myself. I'm just throwing something out there for you to think about a little bit or reject, whatever you care to do with it. This is my journey, my path. I would hear people talk about having a personal relationship with a power greater than myself, and I would say, what is that? What is that? Because I've created this God and I don't believe in it. right? And I've got a construct, an intellectual construct of what I'm willing to believe in. And you're telling me something different. You're telling me something that there's an anthropomorphic creature out there, something that I can actually communicate with that will intercede in my life. And I'm going, no, that's ridiculous. It's childish. And I, I can't go there. But I'm in AA, right? And I'm praying. They told me to pray. At first, it was hard for me. The first time I said a prayer, I locked myself in the bathroom so that nobody would see me. It's embarrassing, right? And I, and I felt embarrassed for you that you would actually talk about this stuff out loud. It was embarrassing to me. You know, I just thought, God damn, she should shut up. You know? Make me uncomfortable. I'd have this kind of visceral reaction to this. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. So I was asked people, if somebody would share about that in a meeting or a speaker maybe, and I'd go up and say, tell me about this personal relationship. What's it feel like? What's it going on? And I would, there were basically two categories, not specifically, but just to make it simple. Somebody would try to explain it to me, and they couldn't explain it to me because they didn't really have it. They're just repeating something that they had heard. They're just talking, They're just because we all pick stuff up and we start repeating it. And it became clear that these people would, it, they would get upset with me when I would ask them. That's indicator number one, right? Then there was other people that would sit down and talk to me about it, and they had something. But it doesn't lend itself to words. It's an experience. It's not a concept. They're having an experience that's very real in their life. There's no doubt about that. <clears throat> So I started doing some reading, I started doing some meditation, I grabbed some books. My sponsor's a great one for handing me stuff all the time. You know, I've got dozens of books that I haven't even read that he's given me. He's a voracious reader and a voracious seeker, it just never stops, you know. And he's the kind of guy that he'll, he'll get the book and take the course and go see the movie and sign up and join and go, go to the headquarters and stuff. We've actually been to the Oxford Group headquarters in Coe, Switzerland. Who else has done that, you know? And I would have never gone on my own. He took me, you know. It's like, and it was an incredible experience. The Oxford Group's still around, you know. It's called Initiatives of Change. They're very active and vibrant in the community. They're very aware that AA came from them. Very aware of it. Very proud of it. You know, while we were there for a week, they had us even give a little presentation about AA and what's going on. It was really interesting, really stunning. And uh, so I started doing some stuff, and I started reading. So here's what I think. Okay. The ego, the egoic mind, wants a personal relationship. Preferably one that's different from yours and better. Because <laughs> it's in competition all the time, you know. So it's going to come up with a creation, it's going to hear something, 
and it's going to grab a hold of it and create a dogma around it and believe in this. It wants its own personal relationship. For me, that's a real trap. Like, how do you find that? Which one's the right one? You go through all this angst and misery. And it's been miserable for me, for the most part. I think all there is is God. By its very nature, it's impersonal. It's everything. There is no separation. There's no subject-object. There is no duality. It's all there is. And in meditation, I can tap into that. There are moments in meditation where I feel connected to everything around me. They might be fleeting. Some are a little bit longer than others. It isn't constant. But the present moment has a feel to it. It has a texture. It has a nature. So that during the course of a day when I'm not in that present moment, when I'm competing for the center of attention, when I'm not listening to you, when I'm not in that present moment, when I'm not connected, I notice that and I can return to it. That happens consistently during the course of any given day. Wherever I happen to be, I can notice that I'm not there and I can return to it at will because I know what it feels like. I don't have to go lock myself in a closet and get quiet and breathe, you know. You know, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's really bad, you know. Sometimes you run into the other room and go, you know. But I can return to that. So I think God is impersonal. And the problem I have with it is I'm trying to make it personal. Because I hear you say that, and I have trouble with that. Um... I led this retreat in Hawaii. I'm on interferon. I've struggled with this the whole time I've been sober. The first two or three years, it's like like the newcomer when he discovers the spirituality thing, and I got all intrigued, and and I started reading stuff, and I'm sitting in meditation in the morning, you know, trying to with my legs crossed in pain, trying to do the right thing with my back straight and on the floor in one spot every time at a certain time of the day with discipline, because you hear that, right? Well, I am undisciplined. So as soon as you miss a day, you just give up completely, right? <laughs> and so I'm going through that dance. But I'm having fun. You know, we're going listening to Baba Ram Das and different people and Ramesh and going to the whole Eastern thing and going to the Bodhi Tree bookstore up in Hollywood, which is no longer there, which is a tragedy. This was a hipster bookstore. It was a great place. Buying books and reading them and sharing with my friends. And we're all, all the gal, we're all on this wonderful journey of discovery. And it was really, really fun. And I got into it, and it changed my whole attitude towards the whole subject matter. It became a fun thing, a fun, happy thing to do. It's like a new toy. And, and then I would drift away from it. I'd drift away from it, and then I would come back to it. And it, So it's been in and out most of my life. This last time, back when I was about 20 years sober or so, and I was really sick, I said to myself, okay, I need to get back into this. I started meditation, meditating with intent. And what I mean by that is I needed help. I was sick and I needed help and I started doing some meditation and doing some prayer with some real intent, intent to try to find some help. Maybe I can find When my sponsor said to me, Bill, there is nothing else. You know, I said, I need some help, Jay. And he says, go find God. And I said, I don't need mindless platitudes. 
I'm not some wimpy-ass newcomer. I need some real practical help. And he yelled at me and he said, there is nothing else. You talk a good game. Go do it. And I believe there is nothing else. One more inventory isn't going to do it. Sponsoring one more person isn't going to do it. Speaking at one more meeting isn't going to do it. You reach a point where nothing you're doing, which you've been told is what you should do, isn't going to fix the inner turmoil that you have. Go find God. Well, that's stupid. Do it anyway. Give it a try. Shut up. He didn't say those words. That's what I heard, though. He's not the only one that said that to me, you know. And uh, so I'm going to lead this retreat in Hawaii, and I'm a, I'm a mess. I'm on interferon. My friend Christophe, who's French, so he's an asshole. Um, <laughs> sorry. That's an opinion, you know. So, and uh, he's one of my dearest friends. He comes over to my house, just walks in the door, and hands me The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. He says, read this. I said, well, I've read He says, just read it. So I take it on the airplane with me and I read it on the way to Hawaii to lead this spiritual retreat, you know, <laughs> with my bag of interferon, you know. And I show up at this place. It's a beautiful place. And, and I did the first session, I think. And there's a little hillside in this beautiful valley. And I walked up the side of this hill just by myself. And there was a little shrine. It's a church camp thing. And there's like a Virgin Mary in this alcove. Somebody's made this, just handmade, neat little thing. There's an old broken down bench sitting right there. And I walked up there and I sat down on the bench and I'm just exhausted. And I'm looking across this valley. It's a beautiful sunny day. And I just closed my eyes and I just started meditating. And I, you know, I had read this book and he's talking about the the pain body. And it's it's real interesting. It's... And, uh, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm just minute closing my eyes and just breathing, just breathing, get some oxygen to the brain. And I open my eyes, and across the valley, there's these beautiful wispy trees. And the wind blew through the trees. And it wasn't blowing on me. I'm sitting across this little valley in the bench, and I could just witness the wind like it was alive, blowing through the trees, and I just... Got it. It changed my life. What is it? Who the hell knows? Who cares? Who cares what it is? We had the need to identify it, but I just got it. And I wasn't separate from it. Now, I've been back to that retreat three other times, and I've gone back up to that hillside tried to recreate that moment every goddamn time. <laughs> I'm a drug addict. I'm looking for the high. I'll tell you something about those experiences. They're very quiet. You have to be quiet enough to get it. You have to pay attention. You know how we say, uh, when somebody says, that's a coincidence and we all laugh because we know it's God? It's just a coincidence. But they happen all the time. And we don't notice them. And then you start to notice them and you think that they've just started. (laughs) All the time. It happens all the time. 
When I got the liver, people come up to me and say, evidently God wasn't done with you. Well, evidently he was done with all those other poor bastards that didn't get a liver. You know, I can't go there with that. You know, I don't think I'm anything special because I got the liver. I think I'm just another person. It just happened for me. Am I grateful? Absolutely, I'm grateful. You know, I bumped somebody. Somebody had to die for me to get that liver. I wrote that family a letter and they haven't responded. I don't know who the guy was. And uh, when I got that liver, a woman got bumped out of line. She was next in line. She was all prepped, ready to go, but she was too small to accept the liver. And I bumped her out. What about her? One of the surgeons came and told me later, and they're not supposed to tell me. She She told me, she says, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but I thought you'd want to know. The woman you bumped out of line, she got a liver. And I cried and I said, thank you for telling me that. I feel better about that. You have to get quiet enough to see it, to feel it. One of the most powerful things I've ever heard is by a guy named Alan Watts. Some acknowledgement out there. Watts is, Watts is a special dude. He had a bit of a drinking problem. Um, uh, Ramdas told me one time, he says, uh, you know, other people had a problem with Alan's drinking, but Alan didn't seem to have a problem at all. You know? uh, in his book, Wisdom of Insecurity, he says, uh, <clears throat> true faith is not knowing and having that be okay. Now, what I've always believed is that I have a belief mechanism that someone has given me or that fits in with my consciousness. And I have faith that that belief mechanism is correct. What Wass is saying is something very different. That true faith, real faith, is not knowing, having no belief mechanism at all. That everything is absolutely as it should be all the time and having faith that that's okay. That's the way it's supposed to be. I don't have to try to make sense out of it. I don't have to have an idea of what happens after death or anything. I can just have faith that everything is as it should be. The ego cannot imagine itself not existing, so it fears death. Because what will happen when, if I'm not around? How could that possibly be? You know. So all the fears that I have, all the insecurities that suffer, all egoic, they're all in my mind. What I need to do is transcend that thinking mechanism. Go beyond it. Be able to observe it. After the surgery, I had um, depression. I got depressed. And I'm not depressed by nature. I'm a homicide guy. I'm not a suicide guy. Scott Redmond, I much prefer your death over mine. You know, I'm the dominant one. I got depressed. I used to make fun of people with depression. You know, evidently, here's another egoic thing. If you have a problem I don't have, I figure you're faking it. <laughs> evidently, that's what I think, because that's how I behave. You know, And then I got depressed. So anybody that suffers from depression out there, I apologize for all the crappy stuff I've said about you. Because once you experience it, it's a different thing, isn't it? When it's in your own personal experience, it's different. And what I learned about that 
When you and I feel bad, we think something's wrong that needs to be fixed, right? I'm not working my program right or there's something, something it needs to be fixed because I feel bad. I think sometimes we just get to feel bad. It seems to be part of life. In the whole spiritual realm, I realize I don't have to be attached to how I feel. I can be an observer of that. And I don't have to struggle against how I feel to try to change my mind, change how I feel. I can be depressed and not be attached to it. That doesn't mean the depression goes away. But I don't have to become Bill the depressed guy, you know. And some things came out of that. One is when I get up in the morning, I do not put my bathrobe on because if I do, I'll be in it all day long. (laughs) Okay, which is not a good thing. It first was, okay, you can be in the bathrobe for two days, never three. Then it was one day, but not two. And then one morning it's like, don't put the damn thing on. It's starting to smell anyway, you know. It's like, and then I just put my clothes on, you know, just do baby steps, just baby steps. Not be attached to it. I don't have to become what I feel. Um, the 11th step has become a really important part of my life Uh, it wasn't for many years it wasn't something I didn't see it for what it really was Um, we've talked a lot about this weekend about you know This is a God program. This is a spiritual program. That's all there really is to it. Yeah, but it's not what you're thinking it is. It's not what I thought they meant by that. It's become something that's really opened some doors in my life. You know, I've had some marvelous experiences around it. That experience that I had in Hawaii, there's been more since then. Sometimes sitting in my backyard. One of the things that you can do in meditation... A lot of people don't like leaf blowers. They don't like to be, you know, all of that is in the present moment. You can attach to the sound. You can hear the birds. You can hear the car going down the street. Anything that's right here, right now, it's all part of life. It's all everything. Noise isn't a problem. It just is. You can be with it and be part of it, be connected to it. When you don't like it, it's because you've separated yourself from it. You've made the determination that it's not good. You know, it's another morality play. It's another right-wrong type thing. All these things are traps. Everywhere you go is a trap. It's one trap after another. You know, you continue on and it continues to evolve. The depth of it gets deeper. Ten is I have self-awareness. Eleven, it would behoove me to try to get close to whatever it is that saved my life. Something touched me. Something woke me up on March the 27th. Something happened. It took me a while to realize that. And now it's become a real part of my life. You know, I want to share one more story with you. I was talking about intimacy. And this guy that I sponsored for a long time, and this I was probably three years sober or four, something like that, and I was sponsoring this guy. And his mother was dying. And uh, 
This was before cell phones and stuff, so he took her, finally took her to the hospital. He was caring for her in his home. This guy taught me how to later take care of my parents. He was changing her diaper and popping her hip back into place, and she was a mean, nasty woman. This was not a nice woman. And he didn't do it with a whole lot of grace, but he did it. And he would come over to my house and share with me. He was in a traumatic situation. I had no idea what to do with this. I didn't know what I was doing. All I was was just there, you know, and I'd sit and listen to him. You know, he would cut through the fog of me needing to talk to him. I had nothing to tell him. I just watched him do this. And so he takes her to the hospital, and he gave the hospital my phone number because he knew he was going to leave there, and I was closer to the hospital than his home. So he would come and hang out at my house, and then if they needed him, they would call him. So this one day he's over at my house, and they call him, and they essentially said to him, you better get over here. We think she's going to go. So he got up and he's in my kitchen and he was looking at me and I knew what he wanted and I did not want to go with him. I didn't, I'd never seen anything like this or participated in anything like this and I didn't want to go and he just stood there. So finally I said to him, I screwed up and I said, do you want me to go with you? And he said, yes, would you please? You know? So I get in the car and we go to the hospital and we walked in the room and she looks horrible. She's in the bed and she's got the monitors all hooked up and and I walked in there and I just kind of scuttled across the floor and there was a chair over there and I sat down in the chair and he's pacing the room. And I closed my eyes and I just started breathing. I just, you know, and I said a prayer like, you know, you need to help me. I don't know what to do here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I mean, even if you're a godless fool, you pray sometimes because there's no other option. There is nothing else, you know. And I, and I asked for help. And a feeling came over me, just this feeling that everything was okay, that nothing, there's nothing wrong here, Bill. This is the way it's supposed to be. It's all right. There's nothing wrong. And this feeling just came over me. And it was real strong. I mean, I, it was a clear feeling. It was more of a feeling than a thought. So he's pacing the floor, so I told him it's a great, he's a great big guy, big carpenter, big heart, calloused hands. And, I said, Al, come over here, sit down. And he sat down in this chair next to me, and I held his hand. I grabbed, I grabbed his hand, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, Al, everything's okay. Everything's all right. This is all right. Just relax. Just breathe. And I said, let's say a prayer. And we lowered our heads, and I don't have any idea what I said. I said something. I don't remember what I said, but what I remember is his big old hand was holding my hand really tight. And as I said that prayer, he relaxed. He relaxed his hand. That's intimacy. I miss it all the time because I'm not paying attention. But it sends me you. I was under the illusion for years that I was the teacher and you're the student. No, that's not what's happening at all. He sends me you. You're my teacher. You mirror me. I see myself through your eyes all the time. I started doing fifth steps with you, you know, my sponsees. I started telling guys some years ago, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. You couldn't have done anything different than you did. You're with us now. The war's over. Don't believe anybody that tells you you're all screwed up. You're not. You're on the path just like all of us. 
We need you. You know, you need us. You know? Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. It's never about us. You know, it's never about us. And I'll tell you something. I believe when you're working on yourself, you're feeding the beast. It's not about you. I'm sorry to tell you this. But it has nothing to do with you. It's not about your neurotic shit, you know? It's about my neurotic shit. If you take care of me, you'll be okay. God bless you. <laughs>